the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, and I'd invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, as we are talking about the weapons of the Spirit. Listen to these words of Scripture that Paul wrote. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am, quote, timid when face to face with you, but, quote, bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Let's pray. Father, this has been just a rich study in your word. As we have walked through this letter that was written to the Corinthians many centuries ago, it still speaks with such power and clarity and wisdom for our age. And it does that because it is your word. You used Paul to record it. You directed his thoughts. And you accomplished what you intended. And I pray, Father, that you would do that very thing in us, in our church too. That we would grow in wisdom, grow in our relationship with you, that we would be wise about the battle that we are in, and that we would learn what it means to use these weapons and to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. I ask it in his name. Amen. A number of years ago, a large Protestant denomination decided that it was time for them to revise their hymnals. So that kind of puts us back a few years too. Many churches have just stopped using hymnals completely. But they were going through a revision of their hymnal. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to remove any reference to spiritual warfare in their hymnal. And so the church was no longer to be an army. Christians were no longer to be soldiers. And God was no longer our mighty fortress. It was as though they were saying that the battle had ended. I know their intention was they thought those terms were just too militant, but it was kind of like they were saying, you know, the battle's ended, we don't talk about that stuff anymore, and it's over. There's just one problem with that, and that someone forgot to tell our enemy that the battle was over. You know, when we come to the scriptures, we find that military metaphors are often used to describe the battle that we are in. And the Bible does that. Paul does that. Peter did that. Jesus even did that, too, to describe this conflict that we face. In 1 Timothy 1.18, for example, Paul will say to Timothy as a young pastor, and he'll say to us, fight the good fight of faith. And literally, those words in Greek say, war the good warfare. War the good warfare. Fight the good fight of faith. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, he tells us that we are to endure hardship. 
as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Think of yourself like a soldier who is in the battle, who gives up certain things because of your focus and your mission. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter warned us to avoid sinful desires that war against our soul. He spoke of the reality of life in this world, the temptations that we face, the things that can distract us from our devotion to Christ. And he said, be aware of those things. They war, they fight against your soul. And even Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, described the church as a mighty army marching against the gates of hell. And he said, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He pictured hell as this fortress that has all of these captives inside and the church is this mighty army that is crashing against the gates of hell to release those captives. The reason the hymn writers described the church as an army was because they saw it first in the scripture and that hasn't changed. And we feel that and we see that in our own experience. We feel the battle and our struggle with sin. We understand what it means to talk about this war within when there are temptations or thoughts that are not from the Lord, that are from this world, and we feel that struggle. And sometimes we wonder, why is it so hard for us to do the right thing? The thing that we know we should do, you know, that we want to do in our spirit, and yet sometimes we find ourselves saying and doing the very opposite. Why is that? That's part of this battle, the war within. But we also see the battle and the attacks on Christians around the world. You can name many countries today in our world where Christians are suffering and dying for their faith. Recently in Egypt, with the unrest that's going on there, there have been attacks that have turned against the church and against Christians in Egypt who have died. You can hear the stories out of Iraq, Sudan, Indonesia, China, Central Asia, where believers are suffering and being persecuted or put to death simply because they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And we also see it in the opposition to Christ and the gospel in the Western nations. I read recently about a court decision in England where a Christian couple was deemed to be unfit to be foster parents. Uh, They could no longer be foster parents because of their religious beliefs. Uh, In particular there, they were singling out their beliefs about homosexuality and what the Scripture teaches on that regard. And in the court ruling, the judge said this. He said that England used to be a Christian nation. We are no longer so. We are a secular state. And because we are a secular state, those beliefs are no longer acceptable. And therefore, you are unable to be a foster parent. Now, they had been foster parents for 15 years and had raised many kids. And now, all of a sudden, here's one court saying, okay, Christians can't do that anymore. In Canada, uh, our university and the Evangelical Free Church, Trinity Western University, went through a lengthy legal battle going to the Supreme Court in Canada to defend the rights of their students to be qualified to teach in the schools. And that kind of contest or conflict was over, again, a statement of faith and a code of conduct that students are asked to sign that says that they will not, you know, have premarital sex or homosexual relationships or all those kind of things that are lifestyle issues. And because the secular state views those things differently, 
they were saying that those teachers would be prejudiced and have a bias and therefore would be unfit to teach. And that case had to go all the way to the Supreme Court where the, the school, the university, won that decision that their teachers would be qualified to teach in Canada. But it amazes us that even those kind of questions are raised. And now there's once again a challenge coming up regarding the university professors in that it is being questioned whether or not there's academic freedom at this Christian university because the professors need to sign a statement of faith and a lifestyle commitment. Things that we would accept as Christians that come right out of the Scripture that are based upon the truth of God's Word, the world is challenging and saying, we don't agree with that. And because we don't agree with that, we don't think that many of you as Christians are really fit to be able to give leadership or teach in some of these secular realms. Isn't that amazing? I mean, our world is changing. In the United States, you know, there are threats that have come to, and it's not just from liberalism, which is the questioning of the authority of Scripture and lifestyle issues, the secularization of our society or the worldliness that affects the church, but it's also even in the emerging church in which uh, some of these newer forms of expressing Christianity are now moving toward a universalism. We saw it first with Brian McLaren and now Rob Bell moving toward a universalist belief that in the end, uh, everyone will be saved. And it just cuts out the heart of the gospel and why Jesus Christ died. And we see those attacks then of the enemy coming from the world. We see it coming inside the church. We see all of these different influences. There is a battle raging. We are in a battle for the heart and soul of men and women. And the good news is, though, that God has given us everything that we need to fight this battle. We can overcome because Jesus has overcome. We can have victory because Jesus leads us in triumphal procession when we walk with Christ. And even though from the world's point of view it may look like we are weak and insignificant at times, from God's point of view, we are triumphant when we walk with him. So how do we fight this battle? What are the weapons that are at our disposal and how do we overcome? Well, that's what this passage talks about. And there are three things that I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, how do we fight this battle? We do it by following Christ as our example. We follow Christ as our example. Paul will say in verses 1 and 2 that we live by the standards of Christ and not by the standards of the world. Now in this chapter, Paul comes once again to the conflict, the heart of the issue that was going on in Corinth. There were these false teachers who had come in who had questioned his authority. And these false teachers charged Paul with being weak and unqualified as an apostle. He did not fit their expectations or definition. And apparently there were some in the church who began to believe them, agreed with them perhaps about Paul. And so Paul, in kind of an irony here, or a little bit of sarcasm even, says to them, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am, quote, timid, that's what they were saying when face to face with you, but bold went away. They were saying, uh, you'll see this in verse 10 later, that Paul's letters are weighty, you know, he sounds tough, he sounds strong in his letters, but his person is unimpressive. We don't think much of Paul. He, he's kind of weak. He's kind of, you know, just 
too gentle, too meek in his appearance and presence with us. And that's very interesting. You know, here is Paul saying, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. He admitted that in his time with them, he was gentle. He was meek. He was following the example of Christ. What I find interesting about that is that that is a completely different picture than many people have of Paul. And when we think of Paul, you know, we think of somebody who was so strong, so focused in his passion. We also think of what Paul was like before he came to know Christ. I mean, he would describe himself as a violent man and a persecutor of the church. And yet that's not how the Corinthians thought of him. And what I see in Paul is this dramatic evidence of grace that had changed his life. This violent man, this persecutor of the church, had become meek and gentle in the spirit of Christ because God had so changed his life. That's amazing. Paul was following the example of Christ. Now, meekness, as you know, is not weakness. Meekness is defined as strength under control. It is a calm and soothing disposition. It was viewed as a virtue in leaders, that you wanted your leaders to have this quality of meekness, this quality of strength under control. You did not want them to be severe. You didn't want them to be a tyrant who was harsh with people. There were enough rulers like that in King Herod or in the Caesars. People knew what tyrants were like who ruled with absolute authority. And Christ is not like that. And so when Paul came, he came in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It was also particularly important for teachers to have this quality of meekness. Teachers must be patient in teaching their students. Teachers must be gentle or meek or uh, patient in terms of correcting the errors of students. In terms of gentleness, gentleness can be defined as kindness or fairness, reasonableness. And it was regarded as an essential quality in judges. A judge needs to have wisdom and discernment to know how to balance mercy and justice. How to listen to a case and decide what is the appropriate punishment or should this person be set free. And so you looked for those qualities in leaders. But here were these false teachers attacking Paul because he displayed those kind of qualities in the church. And Paul knew that there was a time for meekness and gentleness, and there is a time to exercise authority as an apostle of Christ. And he wished to do the latter only as a last resort. He didn't want to come in in any kind of way that would appeal simply to his authority as an apostle. He wanted to gently teach and correct and deal with these issues. But in his next visit, when he came to Corinth, whether he would be meek and gentle or bold really depended upon their response to this letter. How would they respond to what he had written here? Now I think about that example for us in terms of our relationships. We are to follow Christ's example of meekness and gentleness in dealing with others too. We see that throughout the scripture. For example, when it comes to evangelism, to sharing our faith in Christ, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we are to do it with gentleness and respect. 
We are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. And yet when we talk with someone else about our relationship with Christ or we invite them to follow Jesus, to place their trust in Him, we're to do that with gentleness and respect. Not in any kind of a a way that sounds superior or condescending or judgmental. All of those are to be out of bounds. We are to do this kindly. Again, with gentleness. In apologetics, defending our faith in Christ and what we believe, going up against those who would be false teachers. Paul says that we are to gently instruct those who might oppose us in the hopes that God will open their eyes, open their heart, and they will come to a place of repentance and turn to Christ as well. It's a beautiful passage that speaks about that. In suffering, Peter tells us that we are to follow Christ's example who did not retaliate and he made no threats. He didn't come back at those individuals. Instead, he entrusted himself to, those who, to the one who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God. And so here, even in going through suffering, we are to respond with meekness, with strength under control. And in the area of church discipline, Galatians 6.1 says that we who are spiritual should restore a fallen brother or sister gently, looking to ourselves lest we too be tempted. And so here you can go through this scripture and you find all of these examples that apply to different kinds of situations and relationships that all stress the need for us to be Christ-like in our relationship with one another and to deal with one another with gentleness, with respect, with strength under control. We're to do that whether it's in the classroom or the boardroom or our place of work or on the street, wherever we may be. How do we fight this battle? We do it by following the example of Christ. And secondly, how do we fight this battle that we are in? Well, we fight with the weapons of the Spirit. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. And Paul says, though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. We do not wage war as the world does. This is a spiritual war, and it requires spiritual weapons. He tells us that the weapons that we have been given are divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds. They have the ability to tear down these strongholds of the enemy. Now what are the weapons of the Spirit? Well, we find them in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. I won't read that passage, but go ahead and put all of them up. There are seven weapons of the Spirit that are listed there in Ephesians 6. They are the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. And when you think about those weapons, you know, some of those are defensive weapons to protect us and some are offensive. But they relate to knowing the truth of God's word, to knowing that we are covered with the righteousness of Christ We should be ready to share the gospel at any time. We know the gospel. We understand it. We can explain it clearly. We're to have our confidence and our trust in God, our faith in Him, so we can extinguish those fiery darts of the enemy. We know that we have been saved. We know our relationship with Christ is secure because we have placed our trust in Him. And so we have this helmet of salvation that we have put on. 
And then we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, that's the Word of God, and we are to pray on all occasions, at all times, in the Spirit. Those are our offensive weapons, the Word of God and prayer. And what Paul tells us, what the Scripture tells us, is that again, we have everything that we need in this battle to take our stand and to overcome the evil one. You know, when you look at those lists of different things that are to be true of us, you know, do they describe your experience? I mean, do you feel confident in those areas? Do you feel confident of your relationship with Christ? Do you feel confident in your ability to use His Word? Do you see in your life a growing desire to prayer and effectiveness in prayer as God uses you to intercede for others or for requests on your own behalf? You know, those are areas that we as Christians are to become skillful at, growing. I mean, if you were a soldier going into battle, uh, you wouldn't want to just know a little bit about those tools that were at your disposal. You would want to know how to use them well. You would take the time that it takes to train and be disciplined. And in that same way, as a soldier of Christ, we are to handle and know and understand each of these aspects of the weapons of the Spirit that he has given to us. And that takes time. That's where training comes in. That's where we you know, encourage people to be into the Word daily or in small groups where we are studying and we're growing together and we're applying the Word of God to our life. When I think about those weapons, they are scorned by the world, but they are the weapons that Satan fears the most. The world may not think much of them, but in our battle against Satan and against the world and the flesh, these are the weapons that are divinely powerful. Uh, Several years ago, there was an historical documentary Uh, that was made, it was called Weapons of the Spirit. And it was shown on PBS. That's where I first saw it, which is kind of an interesting thing, on the PBS to have this special. It was the story of a small French village, La Chambon, in southern France, where the people of that village went against the Vichy government during World War II, and they rescued some 5,000 Jewish people. The Vichy government, you know, was the puppet government that the Nazis set up. They were collaborators with the Nazis there. And so this town, this village, disregarded this puppet government that went up. And instead they chose to risk their lives to save the lives of 5,000 Jews that they hid and fed and clothed and provided for during those years of World War II. And the man who produced this documentary, Peter Savage, went there to find out why did they do it. Because his parents were two of the people that were rescued. And he himself was born in that village during that time. And he wanted to know why. I mean, in Paris, some 75,000 Jews were voluntarily turned in by other people. You know, just turned them in, turned them over to be taken away to their death. Why did this village act differently? And in the interviews, in the conversations he had with the people, the answer that kept coming out over and over again was their faith, their faith in God. 
This was a humble people, a simple folk, if you will, who lived in this kind of rural setting. They were descendants of the Huguenots, the French Calvinists. They understood what it was to be a minority in a land and to sometimes have people oppose you because you are a minority. But the thing was about their faith is that they believed, they had come to the point where they believed it was the normal thing to do to risk your life to save somebody else. Where did that come from? It came from their church and the humble preaching of God's Word. These were a people who were shaped by the Word of God, who in their services, in their life, in their conduct, allowed the Word of God to so shape them. When this crisis came, they chose to do the right thing, and it seemed like the normal thing to do. It's just what you should do if you are a follower of Christ. And I look at that, and every time I think about this story, you can actually watch it online too. You can Google Weapons of the Spirit, and you can watch this online and see their story. It is just such a powerful example of how God's Word can transform a people. And wouldn't that be wonderful if all of us, if Christians and God's people in the church everywhere were so molded and shaped by the Word of God that when the evil day comes... When the crisis comes, when the disaster comes, that we would simply do the right thing because God's Word had so changed our life. Whether it is rescuing people or helping those who are poor and needy or dealing with natural disasters, it's a powerful statement. The Word of God and prayer are powerful weapons. When we hear the word and we apply it to life, when we use the means of prayer that God has given to us, God changes lives and shapes our world. Samuel Chadwick wrote that the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Uh, He doesn't really care much if we go about being busy with all kinds of activity if we do not ask for God to bless and empower and change. That's why it's so important even things like, you know, next week when we have this missions prayer time. It's important for us to gather as a group of believers who pray for those that we have sent out. It's important that we do that daily in our experience to pray for those that we love, for family members and friends and individuals that we are concerned about, as well as our personal needs. But when we come together in corporate prayer, whether it's two or three gathered together or a small group or as a church, God is present with us and He hears those prayers that are asked according to His will and in the name of Jesus. And God is glorified when we pray in that way. Philip Hughes wrote about this passage. He said this, that this passage is an admonition to the church and to her leaders that we don't meet the challenge of the world with human wisdom and philosophy, with secular entertainment and attractions, nor with massive organization. We meet it with prayer, faith, and the word of God. You know, and so many times people ask the question, you know, when they, okay, why is attendance down in the church? Or what are we going to do, you know, to try and attract more people? And sometimes the church falls into this trap of the world and thinking, well, we've got to be slicker in our presentation or we've got to somehow be more entertaining in what we do. We've got to bring people in like that. 
Well, you can bring people in through entertainment and fun activities and all kinds of things. But if there is no substance there, you're not going to change anything. If there's no prayer, if there's no powerful preaching or teaching of God's Word, if there's no emphasis upon the Gospel, bringing men and women into a relationship with Christ, it is going to accomplish nothing. In fact, the world won't even see it as any different than the world around us. Why should I go to church if there's nothing there of substance that can change my life, that can give me hope, that can help me to live with my fellow man in a way that is different than the world? We need to understand and believe, first of all, in the church that the power of of the church is not in those kind of worldly attractions and entertainments and organization. The power in the church comes from God. His word, the Holy Spirit in us, and a people who will humble themselves and pray. And we are never to get away from those kind of things. And I know, you know, that's not new, that isn't flashy, but it is absolutely true. The power to change lives comes from God and from our commitment to use those means that he has placed at our disposal, the weapons of the Spirit. And so thirdly, how do we fight this battle? We do it by taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. We take those lies of the enemy. We take those temptations. We take those worldly values that are thrown at us, whether it comes through media or comes through friends or comes through you know, the news or entertainment or education. Wherever those ideas may come from, we bring those to Christ and we say, Jesus, what would you say? What does your word say about these things? What are the things that are eternal? What's going to last you know, how do you build a strong marriage and family? What does it mean to be successful in this world? What does it mean to be a Christian? And we don't listen to the world's definition and ideas. We come to the Word of God and we say, Jesus, what is it that you would say to us? How should we live in this world? Paul writes in verses 5 and 6 again about these weapons that they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The Word of God has the power to demolish arguments. Those are the reasonings of the world around us or the philosophies of man. It's the wisdom of man things that may sound uh, good or appealing to people in one level and yet are contrary to what God would say. The Greeks loved wisdom. They loved knowledge. They loved rhetoric. They loved to learn and they had their ideas of how the world should operate. And they thought the cross was foolishness. They didn't understand it. And that's our world today too. And the Word of God has the power to demolish pretensions, these high things, these lofty, proud thoughts, the arrogance of man. They are strongholds. And these strongholds belong to the realm of the will and the intellect. They are a battle for the mind of man. I don't know if you uh, saw last week, some of you may have watched 60 Minutes. Last Sunday night, there was a man named Christopher Hitchens, who was on there, who's one of the most arrogant, 
strong individuals in that way that I've seen. He's one of those militant atheists that we have in our world today who feels like his aim in life is to simply uh, show the folly of religion and to divorce kind of any sense of virtue from religion. Uh, He thinks that religion is the source of all the problems in the world and he is bent on proving that. Those proud, lofty thoughts of man, the arrogance of man, the arguments, the reasonings that appeal maybe to people in this world, but that are foolishness to God. And we see that over and over again. And unless these strongholds, unless they are torn down, his tower will be his tomb. That ivory tower that they may be living in will become their tomb unless they turn to Christ. And I, sadly, was at a funeral recently for a relative of mine that I had shared the gospel with many times in life, but to my knowledge, he never turned to ask Christ to be his Savior and Lord. And it was just so sad. It was so sad to be there and to hear and think about what he is experiencing now. The separation from Christ, the tragic loss what would he say to his family and friends who would hear him now? And it's so sad because so many have no clue about that at all and they kind of joke about the afterlife as though it's going to be this continuation of fun and games and parties and activities as though it's kind of this unended kind of big party. You just, you know, you go from this life to the next and that's all there is. And there are people who have no clue about the gospel and the reality of heaven and hell or those who have heard it but have simply chosen to reject it over and over again. Paul knew what physical strongholds were. In the region where he grew up along the coast of Cilicia and Pisidian Antioch, there were these rock uh, fortresses that had been built by the Cilicians. And pirates used them on the Mediterranean, just like today we have pirates off the coast of Somalia. And these pirates were a thorn in the flesh to the Romans. They interrupted shipping, they stole things, they looted, they destroyed ships. And so in 67 BC, Pompey led a Roman attack that crushed the navy of the Cilicians and tore down all of their strongholds along the coast, 120 in all grappling hooks, tearing them down block by block, brick by brick. And 10,000 men were taken captive. And Paul says that these weapons that we have have the ability to tear down those lofty thoughts and arguments of the enemy. Whether we find them in the university or in media, whether we find them in business or corporations or wherever they may be, God's word is powerful. What are the strongholds of the enemy? They are the arguments and lies of the evil one that keep people from coming to Christ. And there are many. And it doesn't matter whether they are worldly thoughts or they are the uh, false religions or false gospels that are presented today. God's word has power and we need to know it well to stand firm in this battle. How do we fight the battle we are in? We follow Christ as our example. We use the weapons of the Spirit, the Word of God, and faith and prayer. 
and we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. And what I'd like you to think about is where do you feel the battle? Where do you feel the battle in terms of your own relationship with Christ? Are there certain issues that you struggle with, certain sins that you struggle with? Then what do you need to do? Maybe it's a study of God's Word, or maybe it's taking and memorizing some particular scriptures that can help you in your fight against sin. Is it a pressure you're feeling at school or in the workplace? And maybe you need to look at those parts of God's Word that can help you to stand strong. Maybe there are some specific things you need to pray for. Do you see the battle in terms of uh, kind of philosophies or worldviews in conflict and you see that? Or is there someone that you are praying for to come to know Christ? Use those weapons, the Word of God and prayer, as you take your stand. And then if there are struggles in your own life with thoughts or values or things that you have been wrestling with, again, just like Paul says, take those thoughts to Christ, bring them, lay them before His feet, and say, Jesus, what would you say to me? What is it that I need to learn? What is it that I should do? And come and join with your brothers and sisters in our small group studies, in our ABFs, in our times of teaching and fellowship. Find a prayer partner in the church who can pray with you. But use these means to take your stand in our world. Let's pray. Father, once again, we just give you thanks for the tools that you have placed at our disposal, the weapons of the Spirit. And I pray that we would be a people who are so shaped by your word that we would do the right thing because it just seems the normal thing to do. That your values have become our values, that your word just flows through our heart and our mind that we would choose to honor Christ in every situation. Help us in our struggle against sin. Help us to overcome the evil one and the temptations that we face. And help us to walk in victory in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.